Give them the space to succeed or fail. There's not a founder on the earth worth their salt that doesn't need their own space to win or or lose. Uh, it, it's just it's a prerequisite to getting in the game is you have to be willing to own the failure. Thank you for tuning into the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. I'm your host Isaac, bringing you an authentic perspective into the inner workings of the world. Today's message is one you won't want to miss. So let's get straight into today's episode to the Isaac Velez Gonzalez show. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate your time. Let's get right into today's episode. As you all know, over the past several weeks, we have been doing our interview series where we bring on different guests from different backgrounds with different perspectives to share about their lives, to share about the stuff that's worked for them, not just advice, but the mentality and the struggle that they had to go through to become the person they are today. This is all about finding those people that are like us, the visionaries, the entrepreneurs, the disruptors, the people that want to instill change and love and nourish the responsibility to do so. So today's guest is no different than that standard. They come in with their own background, their own expertise, and there's someone that I'm super excited to sit down and have a conversation with because, again, the name of the game is providing values, providing perspective that can show you a different way to improve your life and help you become the hero of your own story. So without further ado, let me bring on Scott. Scott, welcome to the show. Isaac, thanks for having me. Excited about this uh, episode. Great, Scott. Well, so am I. So to get started, why don't we tell the people a bit about your backstory and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, uh, you've created a unique opportunity for me because usually I'm about the youngest guy in most of the rooms I'm in by 10, 20 years now. So I like that we can have a couple of young faces on here um, because it's uh, one of the biggest things I get asked after I tell folks what I've done, I'll get to that in a second, is how old are you? How could you have possibly done that? Because those who are watching know I look like I'm about 22 years old. And uh, I'm not. I'm a little bit older than that. But I've had a, a lot of career crammed in a very short period of time. Uh, started uh, and scaled my first business when I was 20 years old. I was there for about 13 years, and we went from zero to uh, to over 10 million before I left. And during that time, uh, we were very actively involved in starting and scaling other organizations. A lot of them in the nonprofit sector, some of them in the for-profit sector as well. And you know, it, it sounds outrageous, but it's really true. We did about 20,000 different organizations during that time frame. And when you see something happen that many times, you start to see lots of stories. And I can tell you lots of stories, but you start to recognize that there's really just one story happening. And, and whether it's you know, the, the you know, nonprofit founder, the for-profit founder, even a group of founders, what happens is the same story kept playing over and over again. And those who succeeded, you know, we had uh, nonprofits on five continents. At one point, we had seven of the 10 fastest growing churches in the U.S., uh, $100 million uh, for-profit businesses, you know, multinationals, the whole kind of range. And when you watch particularly those that were founder-led still, you look at those that succeeded and those that failed. Those that succeeded followed a remarkably similar path. And those that didn't succeed failed for what I found were very, very predictable reasons. And uh, the hardest lesson of that, and we may even get a chance to go into this, was it's one thing to see that happening outside of you. It's another thing to experience that inside of you. And so while watching it happen at scale, I also had the deeply personal experience of having to walk through that same progression myself as as a founder. Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think here's where business has a huge parallel to history, for example, where there's this common phrase that history 
doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but the patterns are consistent, right? The cycles of, of the world tend to overlap with business. And, and you're right, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of ways that people make a business work, but they all follow similar general patterns, right? And of course you have outliers as in everything, but, but those stories are definitely interesting. So why don't we really start and deep dive into that experience of how it feels, you know, when you had the businesses that worked, you had the businesses that didn't, right? When you're helping other businesses, as well as like, you know, what was it like when you didn't really have as much skin in the game, right? Like they weren't your business versus when it was your business. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, uh, kind of at a macro level first, is how much clearer it is from the outside. Uh, and I have to remind my clients of this all the time, is I'm not smarter than the folks I'm working with. They are brilliant, brilliant people. But I, I just don't have as much noise between me and the truth as they do. And, and so one of the things, and this is true for a lot of coaches, but it's particularly true when you can look at their situation through the lens of pattern recognition, uh, through some of the models I've built and some of the models that uh, my dear friend and colleague Les McEwen has built, you can get so much more clarity from the outside, uh, but you can't create the change from the outside. And so, you know, being in it is the only place that you can change it. But what I didn't realize for over a decade of leading and struggled and struggled with because of it was I kept, I knew that I had to change it, but I didn't have the clarity on how. And so, you know, founders are founders. I love working with them. They're going to figure it out one way or another. It's just the number of times they're going to fail in between now and then. Like, they're going to figure it out eventually. So we're not talking about whether or not you can do it. We're talking about how long it's going to take for that to happen and how many punches you get landed on your face between now and then. So from the outside, to answer your question, from the outside, you always have clarity, right? Uh, but from the outside, you can't invoke change. So from the inside, you can invoke change, but you have to find a way of getting the clarity. I think that one of the biggest problems, and this is like any founder that's like tried at business for over a year, maybe two years. The problem isn't never like that they're going to give up. You know, most of the time they're very committed to what they do. I think that one of the major stepping stones for like anyone starting a business to like starting to actually build the actual business is knowing when to cut losses. And I think that's someone from the outside looking in understands that it's, it's not their baby, right? So they understand like, hey, this isn't working. Hey, let's focus on this. But when you're in the middle of it, it's like, well, I don't want to stop this. Or I've like, I've spent years of my life to this. And I think it's also understanding how lessons are learned. Because when you learn a lesson from a failure or something that's not working, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make that specific thing in the business work. Sometimes it means that you just have to kind of can it and use that experience and build something else that's better. And so I think that in your position, you've most likely seen that happen too, where you have the people that are willing to cut it and they continue growing versus other people that kind of like, you know, they see it and it's a weed to you, but to them, it's like the yeah. little baby. So it's like, it's hard for them. So, you know, how do you go about trying to help them with that change? Because like you said, they're the only person that can really make that change no matter how much you present it to them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, and, you know, for the coaches and advisors and, and mentors out there that are listening, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I shifted from CEO to coach was that you cannot be more desperate for your client, mentee, coachee. You cannot be more desperate for their success than they are. 
you can't be more desperate for their change than they are. So uh, from the outside in, you, you can't create that from them because they're the only ones that can. All you can do is, is gently and consistently and kindly uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, very, very consistently remind them and remind them and, and give them the space to succeed or fail. There's not a founder on the earth worth their salt that doesn't need their own space to win or, or lose. Uh, it, it's just it's a prerequisite to getting in the game is you have to be willing to own the failure. And, uh, and so if you're coming at that type of a person trying to help them by telling them what to do is not going to work very well. Uh, if you can show them the pattern, if you can show them uh, the path and what that looks like and let them choose what they want to do, they can. Now, for founders, there's a couple, I'm going to sequence this because it, it happens at a couple of different times and for a couple of different reasons. So the very first thing I want to say is whatever your idea is to start your business, it's, it's wrong. Uh, you know, what typically happens uh, from a business standpoint, uh, in, in Les's predictable success model, there's this very first stage of a business called early struggle. And the, it's usually a three to five year process. And the first year is basically you finding out in the most painful way possible that your idea doesn't work in the real world. Uh, and whether that be a product fit, a market fit, uh, a skill gap on your part, uh, there's something that happens. And, and when you look at successful organizations, they are not successful with their very original idea in its exact form. It never happens. So there's a couple things we want to grab from that. If you know that's coming, you can start to prepare for it. And that's why for me, when I started mapping out the founder's journey, the, the seven stages that every founder goes through, it became very clear that that journey starts before we actually found our organization. And when you look at the price founders have to pay for success, I won't say what, that, this, that this stage is necessary for success, but it is uh, necessary for removing a significant amount of pain later. And that, what do you do pre-launch, right? And this is the time when maybe it's still a side hustle. Uh, you haven't gone full-time in your job. And, and what I call it, I, I, it's kind of like being a trainee on the sideline, right? You're watching the game happen. You want to get in with everything inside of you, but you know there's lessons you need to learn. And so for that person to, to really dial into the question that you have here, you know, should you pivot or not, it's way less painful to pivot when it's not your sole source of income right? It's way easier to find out what doesn't work when you're doing it on someone else's dime, whether that may be your nine to five employer, or if you're volunteering or, uh, or taking a lower paying role in the space that you want to be in. If you can learn as many of those lessons about what's not going to work on someone else's dime, you'll get way, way closer to learning what will work. And so when you go to launch your own organization, you can, you can effectively skip a lot of that first stage of pain because you did it in a much easier way beforehand. So again, first thing there is to recognize that there is a stage that happens before you ever start. And so don't start unless you've, you've had an opportunity to really experience some of that. Don't make it your full-time job. Yeah, I even think um, there was this entrepreneur I know, his name was Mark, and he, he started, I think, four or five companies over the span of his life. And the, one of the first companies he started, I think, was back when he was in college, and he was with a group of friends, and they, they knew some stuff about like programming and stuff. And during this time, I don't know if it was college or after college, but during this time was like right when the iPod came out, right when, when Jobs announced um, the iPod. And so obviously you had the music on there, but they were one of the people that figured out that you could like program like an app into the iPod itself. And so from what I know about the stories, I know they actually got to meet Steve Jobs and everything. 
Um, but what happened is like after they came out with this and they started talking to Apple and licensing and all this, iPhone came out and then the App Store came out. And so what's funny about it is I think that even great products and even like disruptors, so to speak, sometimes you're like they're great into a market and then something changes and what was great now doesn't really become as relevant as it was before. Or the flip side is whether it's timing or great vision or just the combination of both. You know, you have someone like Netflix who was trying to beat Blockbuster, but the reason they really won out so as quick as they did was because streaming was a huge boom that killed DVDs. And they pivoted right there when Blockbuster didn't. So that, so that increase, right, was huge. But even before streaming, DVDs and CDs were becoming the new thing too because Blockbuster did take advantage of this as well. But CDs, I think before the 2000s, were like 5% of everything because you had like the, um, the VHS and everything. And so it's just crazy when you look at disruptors because disruptors, the only thing that separates a disruptor from a non-disruptor most of the time that we see is just really the timing of how it works. Because in business, like, again, the market's changing all the time. And, and that's really the business. That's the name of the game, too. Like, you have something that works. But in a year, it might not be the same thing that works. And oftentimes yeah. it isn't, you know. And, and sometimes that's a hard reality to admit, especially yeah. especially when you've already found success in one route, too. Yeah. There's a couple of things. One, if, if folks listening have never listened to the podcast Business Wars, it's produced by Wondery, uh, you'll see this happen time and time again. You see uh, companies that just – they became the giant organizations that we know now because it was just the right person at the right time doing the right thing. And, and, and so much of it is environment because you'll see like uh, you know, multiple sportswear companies by a set of brothers, right? All at the same time. Two biggest computer companies in the world happened at roughly the same time. There is an external environmental piece of this. But uh, Isaac, you bring up a really good point. And, and that is that being a disruptor is not about coming up with a great idea. It's not about being particularly visionary, although that's an essential part of the process. It's about finding a market for whatever it is that you're trying to do. If, and this is what happened with your friend is you know, they, may, they had a great idea, a brilliant model, uh, but they may have gotten a couple of months of, of market out of it. And then the market would have disappeared as soon as, uh, as, soon as Apple makes the, uh, the App Store available. So where disruptors really get married to their idea, uh, and this is once they've made the, le the leap, uh, they're in it, you know, you're going full time, this is usually where it happens, you have to recognize it's not about your product. It's about the market and the problem that market is experiencing that you can solve. A disruptor won't disrupt anything if they don't solve a problem that happens. Now, it creates a problem for a lot of the industry players, right? And that's what gets a lot of notoriety. But the real story is actually the problem that the disruptors solved that the incumbents were not addressing. Yeah, they do highlight those shortcomings oftentimes. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about free market capitalism is like there has to be an incentive for improvement. Because if you won't improve, someone else will, and then you're out of business. And that's what's great about it, because at the end of the day, who benefits? The consumer. Because if you're going to offer something and I don't want to offer it, well, you're going to offer to the people that want it, and then those people leave me for you. And, yeah. and, it, and it's a harsh reality of business, right? Business is a, is a fight. It's a battle time and time again. But that's the beautiful thing about like, what it's, like, it's going to end up benefiting is the end consumer. Um, but I, one of the things that, that I'm thinking about when you're talking about this, too, is the nature of disruptors, too, I think over time, you know, it's different things. But the reality of disruptors is, again, like you said, it's not necessarily about the idea. 
It's about the implementation. How can someone execute? Because as a disruptor, I think speed is one of the best friends that any disruptor has because sometimes like you're waiting, you're waiting and you're building, but it's not the right time. And then it's the right time. But if you don't move in that window, you lose out on that opportunity to get into that gap. Um, or for example, like rapidly growing companies, like when Amazon acquired Zappos, you know, Zappos was doing something no one else was doing and Amazon was growing. And so like you said, it's just right person, right time. And then the right moment. And then those things like that happen. So it's fascinating in the business world to see those things happen because again, it's patterns, right? It happens consistently. Like you see a lot of similar trends, but you have to have an eye for it. But I think that's like one thing too, where you kind of have to learn if you're an entrepreneur, how can you study patterns and then kind of get out of your own way when it comes to your own business. So you can apply the patterns that apply to your business just as much as any other business um, and take advantage of it rather than be hindered yeah. by it, you know? Yeah, and and it is speed. Uh, that, that's 100% right. And it's why small businesses beat business big businesses every single day in virtually every single industry. But it's not speed to idea, right? And for, especially for you know, the kind of disruptive, visionary type. It's not the speed to idea at all, actually. It's the speed to execution, it's how quickly can you implement that idea? And, and almost a better word for it is momentum, right? How, do you, how can you shift your momentum and get it all moving in the right direction? So uh, agility, nimbility, being able to pivot on a dime, those are all traits of, of again, highly entrepreneurial organizations in a stage that we call fun. Uh, and and it's, it's a lot easier to do when you have a small team. It's a lot easier to do when you don't have a whole uh, you know, product line that you're trying to maintain. There's lots of reasons that that happens. Uh, and, and speed's really important, but when you get to it on a personal level, it becomes highly, highly, highly problematic when you get beyond four or five people on the team, right? And, and, and that sounds really small, and it is really small. But the reason for that is... That visionary type, they're moving at about, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten times the speed of anyone around them with regard to change. And uh, it's, it's kind of like when you're driving a car, right? You may, you know, if you're driving a race car, you need to turn faster than the next guy to get around the turn and win the race. But if all you do is just turn the wheel back and forth, you're not going to get anywhere, right? You, you may turn really quickly, but you're not going really quickly. And so that's where that idea of momentum has to come from is you have to turn and you have to start doing it a little bit more deliberately. We don't want to slow down. That's not what I'm saying, but we have to value our speed to execute execution, right? When you're racing, it's not the speed you enter a corner. It's the speed you exit a corner that matters. It's not how fast we come up with an idea. It's not how fast we change our mind. Those are easy. Any visionary worth their salt can do that. What, what really sets those who are successful apart from those who just have great ideas, the dreamers, is their ability to translate that idea into execution to get it done and get it done very quickly. I mean, yeah, like you, like you mentioned right there, that's a good example. Like with the race car, like again, when you have that lightness, you can move as you please. But as you want to grow and move more value in a sense, you have to become and see it more like a train, you know, and trains have all these parts that are attached to it. But you can't you can't take a left turn when you're with the train because that train's going to fall off the tracks. And, and so it becomes this idea of understanding those rules and how things change, especially when you bring on people, because the truth is, is if you want skill, you have to have people. Because you can only leverage your time and automation to a certain extent before you reach a limit. And if you want to break past that limit, that's where you bring in people. But I think that's 
often one of the spaces that's not talked about a lot because you have like this cool passion and idea of like the solopreneurs and everybody and they talk about that and then you talk about big businesses that have at least 100 employees and what they do now but even even let's say 50 up but like that window of having more than three employees let's say five to 50 employees or five to 49 that's one of the hardest parts because so many entrepreneurs either there's like two mistakes that i often see one is they don't know what their best fit is. They don't know if they're, most of the time they think they're the CEO just off the bat, but sometimes they're the best CMOs or CTOs or COOs and they need to hire someone else that's better at that role than they are. Or, and this happens this, uh, the same way too, delegation. They just don't know how to delegate because they're like, if I can do this job at 20% of my focus capacity and it's taken this person at 100%, why should I hire them? But then it's like, if you use that analogy with every role that has to be filled you're spread out too thin and that's the whole point you kind of have to like be willing to sacrifice that efficiency because no one's going to do it the way you do and yeah. so it's those two realities that are yeah. very very hard to to swallow sometimes yes it's 100 percent right where this first hit for me uh it was probably the only thing i learned in business school and it wasn't what was actually being taught but i saw the pattern and, and that was um adam smith i believe it was adam smith's absolute and comparative advantage sure you may be able to do that faster but if you can go hire three people who can do that and you can go do the thing that only you can do, the output of the whole is bigger. And it's something that I call the star player paradox, right? And, and this is where, where founders are moving from kind of being the, the everything, right? Maybe one or two people helping them to, okay, I've actually got to lead a team. Now, it's, again, it's a small team. It's in that five to maybe 15 window, not quite 50 yet. Uh, but what I've found in coaching these folks is that the more competent you are as an individual contribute, uh, contributor, the more competent you are as a player, the harder it is to become a captain on the field, right? And, and that's the shift that we're talking about in that range. Again, five to 15 employees, it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how fast you are, although you have to be smart and fast. It's, it's increasingly more and more about how you can get other people engaging in a smart and fast way. It's about being the captain on the field. And what makes this so hard is, one, most founders aren't wired to do this very well, right? They're, they're wired at the ideas that they, they, they want to move. They want freedom and autonomy. And it's hard for them to recognize that not everybody is driven by a desire for freedom and autonomy. So we misrepresent our own desires. and We kind of put that on someone else, and it's not true. The other part that's really hard about it is you don't have the time to just sit down and do it, right? And this is where you talk about those, those 100 people organizations. You take the CEO of a 100-person organization, a very busy individual, but they're very busy leading the organization, right? And, and what happens in that kind of messy middle, especially early on, is you're having to learn to lead while you're also trying not to get hit in the face again, right? It's, it, and it, it's, it's that big a uh, deal. And so that captain on the field, he, he, to win, you have to recognize, or first you have to get an idea, where do I want this thing to go, right? Do I want to just go back to being the solopreneur where I could run and fly my visionary freak flag and it was wonderful and people wrote about me in magazines, but I'm never going to scale this thing up. Or do you, are, have you found the thing that you want, to put your, you want to put your flag on, right? You want to make your stand and you're going to scale it up and actually disrupt an industry. You've got to make that choice. 
the biggest problem I see folks making in that captain on the field uh, stage, I call it the reluctant manager, is they're constantly resisting developing the skill to manage well because they think that it's a, a, a somewhat necessary evil. It's not. It's the key to success in an ever-growing way from here on. And that's why, again, you have to make that choice. And it's a, it's a really personal choice. And it seems obvious. Of course, hire people and, of course, learn to manage them and, and whatever it may be. But it's not, right? There are a lot of folks who are brilliant, brilliant founders who genuinely have no business doing anything more than what a, a handful of people can do, right? They, they, can, they can speak their message. They can, they can have influence, and, and, and that's what they're meant to do. So a lot of times for folks, and you'll see this really at every consecutive stage, there's nothing inherently better about going to the next stage. Sometimes the best thing you can do is actually take a step back, lighten the load on your shoulders so that you really can run faster. You know, as you're saying these things, I'm kind of like thinking of this like analogy that I just find very interesting. And it's almost like, you know, taking business and just the people, not anything else, as like a cog machine. And, and so when you start out, right, you're a, you're a fast spinning cog and you don't have to push anybody. You don't have to move anything other than yourself, right? You're just spinning and spinning and spinning. And as you bring on people, right, you have to start spinning them as well. And they may spin slower than you do. So like you're kind of trying to move and there's that friction that's created there. But, you know, as you move to scale and you kind of realize that like you're not just that small cog anymore, like these people are moving and now that's moving the bigger picture. You know, you get to the point where you're you're at large scale and you have this big, big cog that's moving. The more and more that you delegate the day to day task and the tasks that have to be done, the slower your moves are, but the bigger in magnitude that they are, too. Right. You make fewer choices, but those choices carry weight, And so. It's it's almost like you have like I mean, you have the earth spinning, right? And so we're all doing this stuff. We're all walking around. Animals are breathing, all this sort of stuff. And the world's spinning. We don't feel it. But there's this huge thing that's moving billions and billions of people and trillions of overall insects and animals and whatever. And it's spinning very slowly, but it's a natural cycle of this huge thing that moves everything else. And so I think it's also understanding that as your role becomes more about leading and the bigger picture and stepping away from the day-to-day, -day, things feel slower because your time horizons have to get bigger yes. and because those choices have a lot more weight. You know, when you say, yeah. let's try on this idea, you have a team that's trying on this idea. They're spending all their resources on that idea. And that was your decision. You made one decision yeah. and now they have hundreds of decisions to make. So it's something that again, like, and, and it's a process that we're also very, it's not simplifying, but we're, we're shortening down the process because obviously this takes years, can take decades and it doesn't happen to many people because most people don't make it to that point. But I think it's something that for that person who's looking to scale, like it's important to recognize the big, big picture, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And again, getting real clear on where you want the thing to go, because it, it's not worth tackling all of that if you don't want to keep progressing down that road. If, if you don't have to get bigger to have the influence that you want, then don't get bigger because it comes at a cost. The, the primary driving factor for most founders, for most entrepreneurs who go out and start their own organization, you look at study after study in the top two or three virtually every single time is something along the lines of freedom and autonomy. And, and so we get in, into doing our business in part because we want to disrupt. But what we're really doing it for is the freedom to disrupt. And what you'll find is that while bringing on additional people, especially at these inflection points, it actually creates less freedom.
right? One of the things we think is, uh, like, I hate fill in the blank. I hate, uh, you know, balancing the books at the end of the month. Or I hate, you know, once a deal has landed, I don't want anything to do with it. So I'm going to go hire someone else who can do that so I don't have to. And, and so we think that bringing on additional people means more freedom for us. And when done right, and, and eventually it does. But in the near term and in the medium term, it actually means less freedom for us for a few different reasons. One, you've got to figure out how to manage that person because they are not wired like you. They need a manager. Now, they don't need, to, they don't need a babysitter. They don't need a micromanager, but they do need an effective manager. They need someone to make sure we're all going in the same direction. They need a cog that's going to you know, point them in the right direction and get them moving. And so you, they need a manager. The second thing is you've got to pay for them, which for most founders means you've got to go out and bust it double time to go out and, and sell more to be able to cover the overhead costs or the additional payroll costs if, if it's not overhead. And so you see this, this, this kind of transition happening from a founder. In terms of freedom and autonomy, every level that they improve, that freedom and autonomy dips. And it's not all of a sudden. It, it just kind of deteriorates over time. And, and what happens is once we get up kind of 15 to 50 range, most founders run slam into a wall. It's a really, really difficult time. I would argue it's the hardest time to be a founder is in that 15 to 50 range. It's, it's by no means all bad. I, I don't want to put it that way at all. There's lots of wonderful things that happen during this time. But it's also the biggest test of... Uh, your skill as a leader, uh, and, and it requires the biggest transformation from you as a founder. And so uh, it, it, as I saw it happening again and again, the, you know, the only way I could really describe the term was in a, a negative context. And, and before I say what it is, um, I really struggled with that because I wanted people to kind of be able to say, hey, I made it to the next level and it's this wonderful thing. But when the next level is disillusioned leader, that doesn't really sound like something to aspire to. And, uh, and so I, I tried all kinds of different names for it, uh, and I won't bore everyone with what those were. But one of the things that, that finally solidified it for me, that, that helped me recognize, now this is the truth of what's actually happening for founders, is when I recognize it, it follows the same arc as the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. And it's that dip or the challenge or there's lots of different names for it, but it's the testing period. There's the, there are these kind of increasingly difficult times. You watch a movie, right? Star Wars, whatever it may be. And, and as you're watching it, if you get all the way to about 95% of the movie, it's downright depressing when you look at what actually went wrong. People are dying. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. There's betrayals. The, the lead character, the hero, is woefully inferior to the task. Uh, you stop most movies around that point, and it's a really, really brutal story. Story. And the exact same thing is happening for founders. And again, it's usually, and we're generalizing here, but it's usually in that 15 to 50 range where the return on leadership is so high that you can't ignore it anymore. But the way you create success through others is so very different than the way you created success by yourself that it is a very difficult transition to make. And the way I help, uh, help folks to just kind of process it and understand it and even start to value this transition is I, I liken it to being the, the coach on the sideline. 
So if you follow the progression, we have the trainee on the, you know, on the sideline, and they're just trying to figure out the game. They want to get in the game. They get in the game. It's all about being a star player. That's stage two the startup entrepreneur. Stage three is that captain on the field where we're leading and doing at the same time. At least we get to touch the ball every once in a while. But when you start getting to 15 to 50, you're not touching the ball very often anymore. The, the, a lot of times folks will come and they're like, there's just no room for ideas anymore. Uh, and, and, and so you're trying to now, like you were mentioning, you're leading through other people. You're trying to turn all these other cogs. And if we take that metaphor, it's, you got your cog and there's stuff stuck all around the outside of it. And it's just, you're grinding, but you're just spinning, right? It doesn't feel like you're actually getting anywhere. It doesn't feel like you're moving. And so there's this really, really difficult period personally for founders. Organizationally, it looks like it's up and to the right. Organizationally, you're probably growing and scaling and it's wonderful. But or, but internally, you don't know, like, it, do I even want this thing to scale? Because if it means more babysitting, more firefighting, and more dealing with all this people nonsense, I don't want anything in it. And, and that's why I call that fourth stage that disillusioned leader. And you're 100% right. That 15 to 50 range, it, just, it really does get harder and harder on the personal journey for founders. But we can't stop the movie there, right? And that's the big thing. You see folks who opt out. And I would even say some people who could be great CEOs opt to become CMOs or CPOs or uh, CROs or some other form, not because they couldn't be a great CEO, but because they failed to make the adaptations that were necessary. I've seen lots of people who a lot of folks would have written off as a CEO become unbelievable CEOs. And there's a huge payoff downstream from this. But before we get there, uh, you've got to make that move from, uh, from being the one who's got to have your hands on the ball to being the one who can call the plays. And, uh, and when you do... It, it sets you up for this transition uh, that I call moving from right, the coach on the sideline to the GM in the box or the chief executive. And it's a massive transformation, and the results are absolutely remarkable. Well, I even think that it's interesting how people come to the notion of what they want to be. You know, like you look at you might look at someone that you just want to be like because they seem like they're a confident leader and they have this huge business and they're able to manage all this responsibility. And you have the people that come from seeing the lifestyle, you know, like maybe they, they grew up they, they grew up around money and they saw people coming in on private jets or people that needed to go from point A to point B, which was like 10 miles apart in a big city, are flying on helicopter instead of driving in a private car. And, and they see this and they see these things and they process it as like they just live this kind of lifestyle because they have all this money. And they don't a lot of times i think there's this unspoken rule that people the difference people that understand why they're doing it versus the people that want the lifestyle that comes with it and it's like the greater that you want to be and the more that you want to have the more you have to sacrifice and this doesn't just mean hard work it means mentally like there's a lot of struggles and dips and, and places that you go that are dark places and and a lot of times people people don't know that happens you know and, and yeah. so it's like they want to have all these things but they don't realize the inputs and sacrifices that are required to get those things just from a personal standpoint, you know? Uh, and, and so the hard part about it too is, like you said, disillusioned leader, like what was your illusion going into it or did you see it as it was? You know, and, and, and that's an example too. Like, let's say you have a certain vision for how you want your business to operate and you're like, I'm not at the scale I want to be at, therefore I'm scaling. But you then have to make the assumption however correct or not, right, that 
if you want your business to scale, that's going to require more from your part, regardless of how hands-on you are to the day-to-day. And because of that, and because your time is finite, which is what makes life meaningful at the end of the day, right? The fact that allocating time has weight. And if we don't do this and we do this instead, we never get the chance to do this, right? Opportunity cost is everywhere. You might not get to spend as much time with your family as the Scott that decided not to scale to the next level. You might not to get to, let's say you love golfing and fishing. You might not get to do that as much. And so there's things that you start to leave out and there's things that you have to start prioritizing. And that word priority actually becomes what it's supposed to be. And that means singular, right? It's not a plural term. Like my business is my priority. My business is above everything else, my health, my family. And so it's these kinds of things where it's like, have you actually sat down and asked yourself if that's what you want? Because I have a friend, he's a business coach too. And he tells me, he's like, I'm not trying to scale to a million a month because he's like, I think in a couple of years with the right people, I could definitely do it based on my previous results. But he's like, I don't want that kind of responsibility. And his perfect range is 50 to 100 a month. And I say, you know what? That's so much respect that you understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you might be the best business owner, but you're going to be miserable. And oftentimes too, like you look at the people that have succeeded on a massive, massive scale like they were just so dedicated and skillful and found meaning in what they did that it became so great. And then the people that they needed to take it to that great level, they just surrounded themselves with them. So it's not that there isn't difficulty, but their illusion wasn't about the lifestyle. It was like they were an inventor, you know, and the passion was the project. And and so it's these kinds of things where we have to realize where is the initial motivation in horizon coming from? And based on that, what do I need to assess about the other side of that reality that's going to tell me whether or not where I'm going is actually the right place from a personal standpoint before we yeah. get to the professional business development standpoint? I uh, couldn't agree more uh, on, on a number of notes in there. One of the things that I would say, though, is when you look at folks who are sacrificing a lot outside of the work environment, uh, I actually don't think that's necessary for an extended season, right? Anything can happen two weeks. As a founder, anything can happen for about two months. But if you're looking at at forsaking things for two years or more, I'm not talking about your golf game, but I'm talking about the things that are really important in your life. Uh, A lot of times we're having to sacrifice even more because of how clumsily we're progressing through those stages. When you're trying to hang on to a past stage and excel in the next stage, that's what takes us a ton of time. So where I see folks, uh, uh, this is a huge thing for, for almost all my clients, they're completely buried when we start working. The biggest problem that I have uh, with clients coming in is they don't have time to work with me. And that's the number one problem that we solve. Within two months, not only do they have time to implement the, the change that they're wanting and grow their business, but they also have time to be away from work, right? Uh, you know, as dedicated as founders are, most of them, especially if they've got any kind of balance to their, their lifestyle and their personality, are not trying to work 100 hours a week. There are weeks when you have to work 100 hours. Do not get me wrong. And, and, but a lot of that is really in the early stage, right? When you're doing the training or when you're doing the, the startup entrepreneur stuff, if you have to work 100-hour weeks for your business to succeed and you're in stages three, four, five, you're doing it wrong. It, it's just, it's really not now. If that's your priority and that's what you wanted, that's fine. But I also don't want to paint it as that's the only way that you can scale. 
most of my clients are doubling, tripling, 10xing their business. And just because of a lot of my marketing and my contacts, most of them are, are you know, the, a, a huge priority for them is their family as well. So they're doing it without sacrificing their health or their family relationships, or their meaningful relationships, I should say. And, uh, and so I think it's, it's possible to do both. But if you want to do both, then you have to get really, really clear on what stage you're in and what activities are necessary and vital and scalable in that stage. Yeah, no, I love, I love that you called it out on that because I think, I mean, just as, a, just as a note overall, I think being able to have these, like just having pictures where we're disagreeing too, I think creates more value because... I don't know any good conversation that betters the lives of anyone else if everyone just says the same thing over and over again. Um, but where I see where I agree and disagree is kind of like this picture of like a seesaw and you have leverage and you have time. And so it's kind of like you give time as you go up the seesaw to get to leverage. And then once you get to leverage, the seesaw balances out again. So I think it's this idea of like holistically you want to have a balanced life, but balanced life doesn't mean waking up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, doing the same things every day if you're an entrepreneur, right? Sometimes it's like, Maybe I take this vacation with my family out of balance. I'm not working as much. There's yes. other times where it's like I just hired two people and they got to really know how to do this job. If we want to yes. scale, I can't do this right now. So it's, it's understanding that like sacrifices and trade-offs are going to apply to like the, the patterns, right? The, the dips and ups of, of the business. And so it's like just because it's a, way, a certain way right now doesn't mean it has to stay there. Or it's like if you're spending 100 hours a week, ask yourself like, you know, where is this actually taking me? Because you should get to a point where if you want to be spending time with your family, yeah. that there's an inflection where that's yes. no longer the case. Yes. So you have to be willing to go through this, but that doesn't mean you have to stay in those kinds of places forever. That's exactly right. And, and, and it, nothing in this should say anything about it being consistent, right? The idea that balance is a 40-hour work week that starts at the same time, ends at the same, that's not the entrepreneurial life whatsoever, for better and worse, right? And most people, if that's what it was, they would die because of it. Like, they're trying to get out of that. So, you know, uh, yes, I think, you know, seasons is an overused word, but this idea of kind of flowing into and out of times, absolutely, 100%. But again, I think in the entrepreneurial community, especially Especially, uh, it's actually less now, but you know, folks that, that really came up in the last five to 10 years um, uh, you know, have this kind of badge of honor of like, I sacrificed everything for my business, you know, and it's almost like pat on the back. You, you didn't have to do that. And so, uh, you know, if you want to sacrifice everything, more power to you. I, I, I'm not going to tell you not to, but for those who are wondering, here's why this is important to me. A number of my clients, especially around uh, stage uh, three, uh, where they're in this kind of reluctant manager phase, they're just exhausted. Uh, they, they, they've hit like 100-hour week, 100-hour week, 100-hour week, and, and they're thinking to themselves, hey, if me going from you know, a one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half million-dollar company to a $10 million company is five times this, I don't want that. And the truth of it is, it's not that at all. So what we're not giving as we progress through the stages, and you said this really well, we're not giving more time, right? Uh, because we're getting leverage from our time. What we're doing is we're getting rid of the freedom to do the things that we want to do when we want to do them. That's actually the biggest cost that's happening. It, it, it's not so much that if you want to lead a $10 million company or even if you want to get to a $10 million company very quick, you have to work all the time. What you have to give up is not your time, outside of work, you have to give up your freedom inside of work. And that's the really, really challenging piece. 
Yeah, I remember this this conversation I had um, man, it was six months ago, and I was in New York, and you know I was with someone that I never met before, and we were there for this conference, and um, I was introduced through a mutual friend of ours, and we were standing one night um, where this Airbnb, and you could see the sky, um, the skyline, and everything, and I. I don't know about you, but for me, New York City is so beautiful, like day and night, just seeing the buildings. There's something about the energy there that I, that I love. And we're having this conversation. It's And it's late. I think it was like one in the morning because just our flights were super late. And we're just talking about life in general, right? He was an entrepreneur. He does fashion things as a content creator. Um, and I was talking about my business. And we were talking about everything. And he just had, um, I think, his first or second kid. And so, you know, it's one of those moments where you look at entrepreneurship, not as like this thing that you do, but this life that you live. And, and it's these conversations that truth be told are like some of my favorite things on the planet to talk about. Like when you have someone, they don't have to know your experience. They don't do the same things as you. They're in different industries, but they get the feelings, the energies and the mentalities, right? Yeah. Like someone like you and me, we get the long hours. We get the nights where you're just questioning everything and you don't even know if it's going to work. And you get those moments where you also know like, this worked and I was, it's my fault that it worked. Like what I did actually had this come to pass. Yep. And, and so when you talk about this beautiful game of entrepreneurship, which to me is like, if you married the, it's like the amplification of the marriage of life and business is entrepreneurship. Like it, it's truly an embodiment of something greater, but everything that's great also has kind of the downside, right? I think that's where the name of the game becomes whether or not you want this, because I said this the other day, and I, and I love this. To me, if you want to be a great entrepreneur or business person, and you want to be happy because of it, or at least find meaning, so to speak, you have to think of pressure as a privilege and think of responsibility as necessary. Because those two things, because if you don't think as pressure is a privilege, the pressure will crush you from everything that you have to do. And if responsibility isn't something that's necessary to you, yeah. Right. You're going to be miserable because you have to carry around not the weight of your own failures and successes, but everyone around you. Right. You know that if you mess up, you got families counting on you because of the people that work with you. And, and it's just kind of thinking that it's very stressful. Don't get me wrong. But if it's right for you, that's what's exciting about it, because you yeah. wouldn't have it any other way. Even if you have those sleepless nights, even if you have those moments that that suck. The bigger picture is, you know, that you get meaning. Because you wouldn't have it any other way. Yes. And, and so it's like, how do we promote and push the right ideal of authenticity of do what's actually best for you? Because there's nothing wrong with working a nine to five. But if you're miserable, don't stay there. And there's nothing wrong. And there, yeah. it's great about working in a business. But yeah. if you're miserable having that responsibility, don't trade off your peace of mind for something else. Because at the end of the day, when you're looking at the holistic picture, it's peace of mind. Right. It's peace of mind and getting meaning from what you do. Yeah. Yeah, and this takes us all the way back to the beginning, and, and uh, I, I don't think I said it earlier, but the name of that first stage is the dissatisfied employee, and 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 that that creates a, a bit of a challenge because you have to figure out, the very first thing you have to figure out is, am I dissatisfied because I'm just in a bad job, right? Do I have a bad boss? Uh, and what happens for founders is you can get them, you can take them out of a job with a bad boss and put them into a job with a good boss. Uh, when, when there's research done on, you know, especially successful founders, they're not unemployed slackers. Like these are usually folks making between 150 and 175% of what other people are doing in whatever their job and occupation is. So what separates founders from just dissatisfied people, uh, is that, even when it's good, there's a dissatisfaction inside their soul, 
right? And, and what I tell folks, I get asked a lot because I do podcasts like this and I'm known for my work in the business world. I get asked a lot of people like they have this idea. I got a business idea and I'll hear them out and, and I'll give them some uh, thoughts and, and questions and stuff. But ultimately, the one piece of advice I give everybody is if you can do anything other than start this business, do that. Right. If you can do anything other than be a founder, then go do it because uh, you're going to be happier doing that. And then if you can't do anything else and you have to be a founder, then you know you've met the prerequisites for doing exactly what you just talked about. You, you'll, you'll have the commitment and the resilience and, and, and dare I even say the discipline to stick through all the shit you're going to have to shuffle uh, because you know it's the only way that you can be satisfied. And so a lot of folks, we see this particularly when economies get bad, right? So if we go into a downturn, we'll see this massive uptick in the number of new people who start businesses. They have no business starting a business, and it's a terrible idea for them and everyone around them. So my big thing with what you're saying is if you can do anything other than start an organization, then do it. If, if you have to start an organization, then, then make the leap and, and use tools like the Founders Evolution or, or the many other things available out there to do it well. Yeah, I mean, we can, I mean, there's so many examples you could use, but I, I even think of one, the most common one because of the platform is podcasting. You know, you, as someone that has a podcast, you understand that like, I think the statistic, I don't know if it still applies to how nowadays, but I know I heard this, I think it was a year ago. But it's like 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode seven, 90%. But what's funny is that people hear that and that's a lot. But then the, the next part is like, that's even crazier. After that, right? After you take up 90%, right? Nine, and ten, nine out of 10 people aren't continuing after episode seven that yeah. started the podcast because they wanted to. Nine out of 10 of those people don't make it past episode 21. And I think that in 21, 21 when I have this data, I think there was two and a half million active podcasts or two and a half million registered podcasts on the Apple podcast platform, but only 500,000 of them were active, which means they had been posted within the last month or last two months. Huh. And, and so it's this kind of thing where it's like, you're only going to see the highlights or the people that are actually going after it because they gained the traction. But in the depths of that, there are countless and the much more than the majority yes. that don't make it there or they tried it and it didn't work out. So I think there's also, what society's created in the in the business space is this pride sense of like you've started a business and you are automatically better than a nine to five employee. And I'm like, we need business leaders as much as we need the people that run yeah. the right business. And, yeah. and so the, the name of the game, again, like there's all these names in the games. But in this case, it becomes find what's meaningful to you, yes. because the only kind of person that's to be a business owner is the only one that think that that's the only way they can live their lives. Yeah. Like you have to believe that. Because you'll give up at any downturn because it's so dramatically different than yes. what most people experience. And yep. I'm, not, I'm not a huge TV guy, but there's one show in particular that I love, um, and it's called Billions. And in the last season, there was this episode where one of, the, one of the characters was looking for a political run to Congress and had this person who does like the, the dark deep dive stuff had to do, do a deep dive. And... When he went to give the advice, the first thing he said was, don't be a politician. Everything that you know, your family, your history, everything will be scrutinized. Everything will be pushed to the brink of collapse. And then she was like, I have to do this. And then he said, that's the only person that should, right? Because you got to know the deep, dark stuff. Right. You got to know everything that's going to be pushed to the brink of collapse and exhaustion yeah. before you commit to it. 
because yep. you can't you can't have that blindside you because then you're going to get somewhere and it's going to crush you when you realize that you yes. can't you you're, you're not going to go any further you know mm-hmm. 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. and I, I think that applies at the very beginning uh it applies you know in that stage one are you going to make the leap or not uh and then it applies at at a couple of key key points along the way. We spent a lot of time talking about that kind of stage three, stage four, where you're learning to lead the other people around you. And the exact same thing happens, has to happen there. So, you know, stage one, should you start a business? Yes or no. Once you get to stage three, it's should you scale this business? Yes or no. Because there's a lot of people who, you know, who, you know, to use our podcast analogy, they got past seven, but they never need to get past 21, you know, and, and it's not a great example because it sounds a bit like a failure, but there are a lot of people like, like your friend in the coaching business who, who are in their ideal sweet spot doing their thing as a startup entrepreneur, right? And just staying in that mode, like staying in that, that super nimble, you know, I can say yes to this client or I can say no to this client. Uh, doing the solopreneur thing is, is really effective. Then there's one more place in, uh, that, that this happens, and this is further down the road, but it's an idea that uh, we spend a, a bit of time on in the book, and, uh, just to introduce, intro it for people who are a little further down the road. Another really, really big pivot point happens when you start looking at what's going to happen to the organization when you're gone. Uh, should you sell it? Should you uh, raise up the next generation of leadership? And what does that mean for you in the process? Right? And this goes all the way back to the, the thing you made at the very beginning. The, the decision you make all at the very beginning is the only thing that I can do is start this business. I can't do anything else. What folks don't realize when they're looking at, especially founders who are selling their business, is they made that decision. They couldn't do anything else. They had to do this business. And now they're looking at, at it and saying, what, what would life look like after this business, right? How's, what's the best way to get out? What's the best exit? And the, the, the secret to successful succession uh, is you actually can't make it about you. Uh, and and I, I, we'll, we'll leave the rest of it as a little bit of a, a cliffhanger there for anyone who wants to. But, but if anything across this journey, right, you start off to say, hey, this is what I need to do. When you get into that disillusionment leader, it's not about you. It's about the team now. What does your team and organization need for you to be able to scale it up? Why we see so many people do succession wrong or sell themselves short uh, is because they don't recognize the final few steps of their evolution and they, they make a wrong choice because of it. I think everything across industries, across what people are doing, across like the whole like, I think it's fire, right? Where it's like you, you make a bunch of money and then you and you retire early. Um, financial dependence, retire early, I think that's what it stands for. Um, and just all these different movements across. I think there's one story that an entrepreneur told me once and I, and I love it because it, it highlights the dilemma of what to do with your life, especially when it comes to the work you do. And, it, and, and the story was called The Mexican Fisherman. And it was about this, this man who grew up in a, in a small village in, in Mexico, and he was a fisherman. He would go every day to the lake with some of his buddies, and they would go and they would catch fish for a couple hours. Or even if it was just him, I can't remember that part of the story, but I know he would go to the lake and he would catch fish. And he would be there, you know, calmly catching the fish, and then he would take the fish, and he would meet up with his family, and they would go to the center of the village, where they would trade the fish for other things that they needed, as well as cook the fish. And then they would tell stories all night long, drink beer, drink cerveza, and then they would go and they would go home. And then the next thing would happen the next day. And then one day he gets approached by a Mexican businessman. He said, what if we 
take your business. We'd make this into a business, right? You're catching all this fish. What if we start buying more boats and you can hire people and you can scale this huge business and you can basically work for 20, 30 years building this nice business and then you can sell it for a bunch of money and then go do whatever you want. And he's like, well, what would that look like? And he's like, well, you could go fishing during the day and you could take that fish to the village with your family and tell stories and drink cerveza and cook the fish and do whatever you want and do the same thing and not have to worry about anything. And he's like, well, I already do that. And, and, and so the, the picture of it becomes, what do you want to do with your life? Like if you, not, not the days that you're having vacation or that you're out traveling or exploring, like if you're talking about the day to day of what you're doing, what are the things that you want to be doing, right? Who do you want to spend your time with? And so when you build this picture, you start to understand how quickly you can start living the life that you want. And it's not that every day is going to be that day, especially for an entrepreneur. It's not going to be like that. But there's there's a beauty in the story because I think for you and I, I think I can speak for both of us where it's like we wouldn't have it any other way, even in the downsides, right? Because the downsides teach us things about ourselves. They build our character. They build our strength. And that's what makes it so exciting. Because we can't, if we had it vanilla, it wouldn't be as meaningful, yeah. right? And it wouldn't be as stressful, but then we'd be sitting there like, there's more, there's more, there's more. And that would kill us because then we would mi- reach our day when it's time for us to pass. And we would be like, man, like I always felt like I had something in me that I never tapped into, hmm. you know? And, and, and sometimes it's also understanding that feeling and that nature because it's not, that feeling doesn't mean that you have to start a business. Sometimes it's like, this company doesn't share my values. My boss limits my growth. I have a glass ceiling. Yeah. So that just means a different job. That means a different opportunity. And, and so it's these kinds of things where it's like, this is the right kind of narrative for the right kinds of people, right? This is where it becomes a lot more about what do you know actually about yourself and how can you make the decisions to yeah. help yourself, right? And understand that any life that you choose, it's going to have, you know, it's ups and downs, but also like, you know, it's like the Bruce Lee quote, like, don't pray for an easy life, pray for the strength for a hard life. Yeah. But it's kind of like you choose your heart too. You know, there's, there's a lot of choice involved here. And, and that choice needs to be derived from what you actually care about and what provides meaning in your life. That's 100% right. Yeah, it's 100% right. It's just such a great point. And I think the really beautiful thing about being a founder, especially when you come to terms with the stage that you're in, you know what's required of it and you know where you want to go, right? Is that you have the most power to shape that. Yeah, and that's the really, really special thing about the entrepreneurial journey is that you have more power to do that than you do in any other frame, right? If you're going to work for somebody else, you're always going to have to do the things their way to some extent, right? But as a founder, as an entrepreneur, if you again, if you do it well, right? There's a lot of people who do it clumsily, but if you do it well, you will create the most freedom in your life to define what you want that life to look like. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation, Scott. I I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that I just love to hear because it's things that I don't know, but it's also like things that, and I, and I say this after most of my interviews because the people are just exceptional like yourself. And, And it's, it's about this ability to mastermind, you know, like when you have a certain level of understanding of yourself and, and the reality that we live in, you know, especially this understanding that the, the more we know, the less that we actually know, it becomes this kind of cool mastermind where it's like, you know, I create ideas off the ideas that you formed off of what I said, off what you said. And it's this piggyback, but it's this ladder. It's always like this back and forth escalation. And so you get to this point where it's like, you're not even thinking about what you say. It's just a natural fluctuation of like the response of everything that's going on. And I think that's like, 
before I ask you my final question, one of the most powerful things for anybody, regardless of what you do, is proximity to the right kinds of people with the right kinds of energies and the right kinds of minds. That proximity can leverage anything that you do 10 times, right? The right partner that you choose leverages your life. The right friends you choose leverage your life. The business partner, same thing. So I think proximity is a huge, huge assistance to anybody regardless of what they do. And my question for you as we close off today, one, please tell the people where they can find you, anything that you're offering for them that could help them benefit their lives or scale their business. And two, if you had to offer one singular thing that would help someone in your stage three, get out of stage three and go to stage four, what would you tell them? Yeah. uh, So folks can find us at scalearchitects.com. If you go to scalearchitects.com slash founders, there's a digital books free for everyone. You can download a copy and it'll walk you through all seven stages. Now actually answer this exact question for every single stage. So every stage comes with an essential strategy. Uh, and, And when we put those together, that's what really creates success in that stage. So if you have someone who's in stage three, you got five, 10, 15, or maybe even a few more employees that are working for you, and you're just struggling with it. You're just not growing as fast as you want. You're probably exhausted. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like you're carrying a lot more of the load than everybody else. The very, very first thing you need to do, and, and this is, it's written in the book, so it's not just tailored to this conversation. You have to make your decision. You have to decide, is this something that you're going to commit yourself to? You're going to learn to lead others and develop those skills, or are you satisfied and happy being that solopreneur, maybe with a couple of helpers and just doing your thing? Either one, I'll support you 100%. Either one, equally noble, but you've got to make that choice. Once you do, you'll be surprised at how quickly you can learn the skills of managing. And this is something that's unique about founders, and it's why I think a lot of us have this kind of false idea of how far we can go or if we can be CEO. What I've found, the number one thing separating a founder from being able to progress and not is whether they've just committed to doing the the work that it takes. That's why if you make the decision and then find a guide, find some articles online, go check out all the free resources on our website, you'll figure out how to get those skills. But the one thing you need to do is decide that you're not going to treat them as a necessary evil. You're going to treat them as, as integral and essential to your success or drop back to the solopreneur and just run it like crazy. I love it. I love it. Folks, you know the deal. Go check out the resources. Go check out what they do because, again, it's the name of the game is providing value. Go see where you can take things and implement them into your business um, and go see everything that Scott's doing over there at Scale Architects. They really do a great job of what they do. And, you know, my final thing is, again, just remember that when you're listening to these conversations, unconsciously you're going to process a lot of information and it's going to get in your head. And in those moments that you need it, it should appear And sometimes you have to work on that ability. But the one thing I'll say is try to write down a tangible takeaway. Don't worry about taking one 20 notes, 30 notes. Find one. One thing that if you were to take from this conversation, either that Scott said or that I said, and it would better your life because you took advantage of it, find the one thing and implement it. Because it's the small things that add up, right? It's the small things that we do on a day-to-day basis that create that change. And so everyone, you know how we close it out. Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. And we appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode. We are grateful for your support. And if you are serious about improving your life, check out our coaching at www.isaacvelezgonzalez.com. Until next time, that's all for today's episode. Thank you.